Well, good morning. It's good to see everybody this morning. This morning, I want to invite you to open your Bibles to Genesis chapter 1. Genesis chapter 1 is where we'll be this morning. And if you're joining us online, thank you so much for um, prioritizing gathering with the body on Sundays at 930 to be able to worship. And so we're so glad that you're, you're with us also. And invite you to turn on your phones or in your Bibles to Genesis 1. Now today, if you were to ask me to tell you about my wife... Um, I would probably do something like this. I would probably look off in the distance a little bit with this kind of, you know, ridiculous grin on my face and just say something like this. She's amazing. She's amazing. Now, does the lack of specificity in that comment, I mean, because like, you know, people say that about all kinds of things, right? You know, like, oh, you know, like, how's that new restaurant? Oh, it's amazing, you know, and stuff like that. So do I just mean that she's just amazing like a new restaurant is um, here in New Orleans? No, that's not, that's not what I mean. You know, yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, if, if you were to, but, but if I were to give you the real answer, if I were to, to, to go on in detail telling you, you know, how much um, I enjoy laughing with her and how much we, we laugh in our marriage and, and just enjoy time together. I could tell you about how beautiful she is. I could tell you about what an amazing cook she is. I could tell you what a fantastic leader she is and how God has given her amazing administrative skills. I could tell you how smart she is and how much I enjoy talking through ideas with her. I could tell you what an amazing mother she is and how I'm floored at her dedication as a homeschool mom and as the director of our homeschool community. Or, or I could just look off in the distance with kind of a silly grin on my face and say, she's amazing. She's just amazing. That's what I hope you and I will be able to do at the end of this sermon today when somebody says, tell me about God's design. When God created things, like what's, what's that about? That you and I would kind of look off in the distance with this grin and just say, it was amazing. It was absolutely amazing. It was so good for people. It was so good for our relationship with God. It was amazing. And so with that, I want to invite you to turn and then to stand for the reading of God's Word. And a seminary professor once invited a congregation to turn to the most important verse in the Bible. And he didn't tell the congregation what it was. And rather than giving you time to ponder that, I'm just going to tell you that the verse that he went to, and, and it was the verse that I really sensed that he might, was this one, Genesis 1-1. And so we're going to be looking at all of chapters 1 and 2 today, but I just want to read Genesis 1-1 over you today as the foundation for all that is. So hear the word of the Lord from one of the most important verses in the Bible. In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. Can you pray with me? Father, I pray that from this simple verse, we will see the profound truth of your design and how good it is. So that as we go forward into New Orleans and all nations with the gospel, which is the only way that we are able to begin to recover and pursue your good design, that we will be reminded today as your people just how good it is for our flourishing as your image bearers made in the image of God. It's in Jesus' name that we pray. Amen. You can be seated. Well, this morning as we go through this passage, 
kind of in honor of the fact that we see seven days of creation, we're going to put forward today seven aspects of God's design. Seven aspects of God's design. And so we're going to move through those today. And so where we're going to start first is with God's design brought order out of chaos. And that's really what chapter one puts on full display, is that God's design brought order out of chaos. I want you to look at verse 2. It says, now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths, and the Spirit of God was hovering over the surface of the waters. Now, if you look at verse 2, it's kind of like an episode of HGTV, okay? It was uh, God takes this formless, empty, dark depth and begins to order it and to move it and to bring forth light and life. Verse 2 sounds more like a description of, of Venus than earth. And yet, step by step, we see God receiving all the credit, all the glory for crafting a planet on which life could exist, the crowning aspect of that life being human beings. To the chaos of verse 2, we see the following order. You, you start moving through verse Verse 3, then God said, let there be light. And then we see, let there be an expanse between the waters. And then we see, let there be water under the sky. And then let there be lights. And let there be water swarming with the living creatures. And let there be man made in our, in, in our image. And what we see is, let there be, let there be, let there be, let there be. Don't miss this. The very first thing that God said was, let there be light. Let there be light. And it's that important idea of light that is then really developed in the New Testament again and again and again from the writers of the New Testament. We see Paul in 2 Corinthians chapter 4, verse 6 saying, For God who said, let light shine out of the darkness, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of God's glory in the face of Jesus Christ. He is still the God who is able to bring order out of chaos. For this has always been his design. And although it was lost, it is restored through Jesus. You see, I don't know anybody that when I talk to them about, you know, how, how is life going? And they say, man, it's just chaotic. It's just chaos right now. That they wouldn't receive some guidance on how to rightly order their life. In fact, there's thousands of books, there's podcasts, there's seminars, there's all of these things about how to rightly order our life. And what we fail to often see is that that's exactly how the creation story unfolds. It's God taking this darkness, this emptiness, this chaos, and then ordering it and bringing it into order. And what I want you to know, the good news in Jesus Christ is that God brings about a right ordering of things. And the first thing first is Jesus. And it's only as we kind of lock our eyes on him that all of the other things begin to then fall into place. It's putting first his kingdom and his righteousness that then gives order to all of the other aspects of this life. But until we do, verse 2 is kind of our description. We talked about it last week about brokenness, but really verse 2 of chapter 1 of Genesis is kind of a description of our brokenness, that, that our lives are formless and they're empty and there's darkness covering the surface. There's, there's watery depths. And that's what life seems to be apart from the ordering that only God can bring in Jesus. Second, 
God's design included male and female, both in the image of God. Let's look at Genesis 1.26. It says, Then God said, Let us make man in our image according to our likeness. They will rule over the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, the livestock, the whole earth, and the creatures that crawl on the earth. So God created man in his own image. He created him in the image of God. He created them male and female. Now, notice what it does not say. It does not say anything about skin color. And this is pertinent to to today and the issues that we face, even here in the United States of America, concerning racism. But it's important to look back and to see in God's created order, there is not this distinction of skin color. Genesis 127, therefore, condemns the institution of slavery. But now somebody may say, but well, Chad... Later in the Old Testament, in Exodus, Moses talks about slaves. Chapter 19, permitting slavery. So doesn't that mean that biblically, slavery was okay? Well, the Pharisees during Jesus' day made the same argument about divorce. They said, well, Jesus, if divorce is not okay, then why did Moses permit us to issue a certificate of divorce? Jesus' response was to go back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2, our text today, clearly articulating God's design, but then noting that the reason Moses wrote about divorce was not because that was God's design, but because of the hardness of their hearts. Anyone who would today argue that God is fine with slavery or racism has the same hard heart that the Pharisees displayed 2,000 years ago. God has always been opposed to slavery and every form of racism and continues to oppose it today. And those in Christ stand with God against slavery and all forms of racism. And the grounding for it is not a cultural movement. The grounding of it is Genesis 1. That, that we, our footing has always been there, even when some lost their footing and allowed a cultural conditioning of understanding to influence how they treated someone else based on skin color. But notice in the text what it does say. So it doesn't say anything about skin color, but it does say this. He created them male and female. Ever since the fall, Genesis chapter 3, most cultures have reduced the inherent value of women, which is equal to men. Notice that God celebrates the distinctiveness of women by shifting from corporate language of mankind or human being language and specifically noting two genders, male and female. Paul does the same thing in Ephesians, which we recently studied. Male and female together reflect the likeness of God so that each reflect the glory of God, though neither fully reflects the glory of God alone. This matter of gender is hotly debated today. Some argue that gender is a social construct. In other words, it's something that we as people came up with in order to suppress women and to promote male dominance. Now, I absolutely understand how people who argue this way have come to these conclusions. Such an explanation makes great sense out of observable patterns. But just as in every other area of life, Certain presuppositions exist in the social sciences. 
many social scientists operate from a worldview that presupposes the non-existence of God. In other words, an atheistic worldview. Instead, presupposing that gods or religion are the social construct of people, and thus you have the proliferation of various gods and manners of worship that we see all around the world. Again, this is a very understandable conclusion based on observation. But other Near Eastern law codes treated women, other Near Eastern law codes being those that would have been written in somewhat the same time frame as we have Genesis through Deuteronomy being written. These ancient Near Eastern law codes treated women in their laws the way that they protected and spoke of cattle and other animals. Women were more akin to property than person. So the explanation that Moses simply lifted the creation narrative from literature that he had received in his world-class Egyptian education in the household of Pharaoh, it simply doesn't fit. It doesn't add up. In other words, if he had been influenced by those law codes and their understanding of women and how they operate in society, then what we would have expected in his writings is women being equated basically to property. But that's not what we see in God's Word. It may help explain the excellence of Moses' form, but it does not explain the content, especially the content of Genesis 1 and 2. The content is best explained as revelation. God made known to Moses the manner and the meaning of his created order. I cannot overstate how significant this idea is. If Genesis 1 and 2 truly reveal God's created order, his design, his intention for human flourishing, then that means it's not something that we have the burden of inventing. I mean, think about the burden that that is on humanity to figure out, well, gosh, how do we flourish? Like what really results in us being totally free, thriving the way that we ought to? We're constantly figuring it out. But guess what? We're also the experiment. And so the carnage of us saying, well, maybe this is the way to freedom. And then we pursue it and we go down this road and we end up in this dead end. The human carnage is extreme. The cost of us experimenting with human lives is not acceptable. It wasn't acceptable at any point in human history. And it's not acceptable today in the social sciences. Instead, what we see revealed in Genesis 1 and 2 is human flourishing at its best as something intended, as something designed by God. And only in Christ do we recover and pursue it. You see, I love how the Gospel of Luke and how the book of Acts capture the manner of Jesus and the early church and their interaction with women in particular. He treated them with incredible dignity and respect. They, they followed him with the disciples. He had conversations with them. He appropriately loved them and guided them. And when we look at Jesus, we see exactly how God intended women to be treated and valued. Even though in his day, that wasn't cultural. Only in Jesus do we recover the inherent dignity of male and female as gifts from God. Number three, God's design was very good for earth, animals, and people. Look at verse 31. It says, God saw all that he had made, and it was very good indeed. 
evening came and then morning the sixth day. Medical doctor Matthew Sleeth in his book, Reforesting Faith, what trees teach us about the nature of God and his love for us, he writes this, for the majority of my life, I did not believe in God. That's not the case anymore. In fact, the trees in the Bible are a crucial part of what brought me to faith. Christianity is the only religion that weaves trees from one end of its sacred text to the other. Very important, every important character in every major event has a tree marking the spot. There's a tree in the first chapter, there's a tree in the last chapter of the Bible. In the first psalm, there's a tree, and in the first gospel, there's a tree, a family tree that is. Christians bring trees indoors once a year to celebrate the birth of their Savior. Trees are extremely significant to God. Now, Earth Day was this past week on Thursday, April 22nd. Now, let me just be honest. Christians don't have the best track record for demonstrating consideration for the earth. Chad, is this political jargon meant to support green efforts by the new administration? No. This is biblical jargon meant to alert you that you and I are on borrowed property. We are tenants on someone else's earth. Remember Genesis 1-1? In the beginning, God created the heavens and the earth. And that should impact the way that we treat the earth in its simplicity. You know, what if one of the barriers to atheists believing that God created the earth, becoming theist, is that people who claim to believe in God, you and me, and who believe that God created the earth, we treat it like man created it and can do whatever he wants to it. What if our poor stewardship of the earth makes the message of the Bible less believable? As Paul says in Romans, all of creation is groaning for the sons of God to be revealed. It stands to reason that the children of God should be currently demonstrating why all of creation groans for in, in anticipation, not the reason it groans in desperation. Number four, God's design included a day of rest. How good is this? I mean, think about the good news that that is in our current pace, our current culture that just says, go, 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 go. So many people work so hard in order to enjoy the weekend. Many people who love the rest and recreation that the weekend brings have little idea that God designed each and every week to include a day of rest, of recreation. Historically, the Sabbath would have begun on Friday when the sun set and end on Saturday when the sun set. 24 hours that started with rest. Medical doctor Richard Swenson in his book, The Overload Syndrome, makes a compelling case for the goodness of God's design in both the symmetry of days being night and day and the rhythm of the week to include a day of rest, a 24-hour period of ceasing from work. He notes 11 categories of overload, including debt, that we're spending more than we make, media overload, we're taking in more than we can consume, and accessibility, always able to be gotten a hold of. And his book was written in 1998. Facebook, Twitter, Instagram, and the iPhone had not even yet been invented. I think that we would do well under the new covenant inaugurated in the blood of Jesus Christ, our Savior, to receive the Sabbath as a gift from God Almighty, not as a law, 
the most successful medical students that I had the joy of growing with here in New Orleans were those who practiced the spiritual discipline and the grace of taking a Sabbath. Each Sunday, these medical students would cease from their six days of intense study and work in order to spend Sunday in worship with the church, in relationship with other believers, often lingering after the worship service and then having lunch together, then enjoying God's creation in City Park or out at the lake or the fly or Audubon Park or elsewhere, doing all in rest. Study would resume that evening, but for one night and one day, Each week, there was rest, and these students finished at the top of their class at LSU Med School. You see, when we receive the Sabbath as a gift, then we'll savor it as a gift rather than as a law. And listen, in our day, we need rest, but only God restores the soul. Number five, God's design included His Word. Look at it in in chapter 1, verses 28 through 30. It says, God blessed them and said to them, Be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it. Rule the fish of the sea, the birds of the sky, and every creature that crawls on the earth. God also said to them, Look, I've given you every seed-bearing plant on the surface of the entire earth and every tree whose fruit contains seed. These will be food for you, for all the wildlife on the earth, for every bird of the sky, for every creature that crawls on the earth, everything having the breath of life in it. I have given every green plant for food, and it was so. And then turn over to chapter 2, verse six, verses 16 and 17. Where we read, And the Lord God commanded the man, You are free to eat from any tree of the garden, but you must not eat from the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. For on the day that you eat of it, you will certainly die. Then the Lord God said, It is not good for man to be alone. I will make a helper corresponding to him. The Lord formed out of the ground, out of every wild animal and every bird of the sky, and brought each to the man to see what he would call it. And whatever the man called it, called a living creature, that was his name. And the man gave names to all of the livestock and the birds of the sky and the wild animal. For, for, but for man, there was no helper that was found corresponding to him. So the Lord caused a deep sleep to come over the man and he slept. God took one of his ribs and closed the place with, with flesh at that place. And then the Lord God made from the rib that he had taken from the man into a woman and brought her to the man. And the man said, this one at last is bone of my bones and flesh of my flesh. This one will be called woman for she was taken from man. And what we see in, in, in God's design was the inclusion of his word, his instruction to mankind. And this is important because this is how we, we understand and, and receive the word of God today is through the written word, which is a record, which is a writing down of God's word spoken and communicated and carried along, carrying along by his Holy Spirit, specific authors then in the New Testament. But first, what I want us to see is this, God's word results in human flourishing. When we read right here, be fruitful, multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, that's human flourishing at its best. When you look and you see the provision of food that I've given you all of these green plants to be able to eat, that is human flourishing at its best. God instructing them in specific ways to flourish, to be fruitful, to multiply, to fill the earth and subdue it. But then secondly, his word is a protection. In chapter 2, he says, you can eat of all of these trees, but of this tree you must not eat. For in the day that you do, you will surely die. 
And so God's word is there, and it is causing a protection to exist in the garden from the one thing that would cause man to die. Now we can look at that and say, well, God obviously is is keeping the best away. Well, that's actually what the serpent said on that day. And that's important for us to understand and to see how it was that Satan was baiting them to believe that God was withholding from them something rather than believing the truth that Genesis 1 and 2 puts forward so plainly is that God had given them everything for their enjoyment, for their flourishing, for their good, and that keeping them from this one tree was for their good, for their protection, for their flourishing. That's a needed message today. You see, the the lie that still perpetuates today is that the reason that, that, that God's Word says the things it does about gender or about marriage or about human sexuality and all of these things, well, that, that's just to limit us. That, that's to suppress us. It's to keep us from flourishing. And if you embrace this, you won't flourish. You won't thrive. And yet, God's Word speaks a very different message. I mean, when you look at Genesis 1 and 2 and you see the beauty of it, I don't know anybody that doesn't want a flourishing earth. I don't know anybody that doesn't want rest. I don't know anybody that doesn't enjoy relationship. I don't know anybody that that doesn't enjoy at least some animals, maybe not all animals, but at least some animals. I mean, like, you have all of this stuff, and then all of a sudden it comes to this context of His Word and the limits that He places, and it's like, whoa, whoa. But not that. I reject that. I don't want God telling me what to do and what not to do in this life. And yet, God's design includes his word, and his word is good. Number six, God's design ordained marriage and procreation. In their book, Open Embrace, which explores a Christian couple's reconsideration of contraception, Sam and Bethany Torod write, what does it mean to be a human being? For Christians, it means to be created in the image of God. But what exactly is that supposed to mean? This may seem an odd question, which to begin a discussion of contraception, but it's really the most important question of all. Our answer to this question determines how we view ourselves, how we relate to each other, and even how we approach the subject of birth control. Now, some of you are saying, hold on, Chad, you're starting to talk a little crazy up there, but please hear me. I'm not suggesting that you need to start driving a bus, but I am suggesting that we need to think about things the way that this couple did, starting from a biblical worldview that carefully considers God's design as a template for human thriving. In other words, when they came to the question of of how many kids to have and, and how to do birth control, they said, well, let's start back at Genesis 1 and 2. That would serve all of us well in this life, to come back carefully to the Word of God when we consider the nature of our creation, how we were created to thrive in God's created order. Now, I believe that that can lead in some different directions, different interpretations, but I think as a foundational starting point, we can do no better. And those are the practices of Jesus. Verse 24 provides clarity in God's design on how marriages are to exist. This is why a man leaves his father and mother and bonds with his wife and they become one flesh. You see, a man is to leave his father and mother and cleave to his wife. It doesn't say 
much in this passage about marriage, but what we look and we see is this is the, the formation of the first married couple, Adam and Eve, and that it was part of God's intended order. But notice, we can't separate it from the blessing of being fruitful and multiply, fill the earth and subdue it, and rule the fish of the sea. And, and the whole passage from Genesis chapter 1, that God intended it for this purpose. And so we look and we, we get this big view, but it's this last part of God's design that I want you to consider and to consider carefully in a culture that is increasingly shifting to an honor-shame aspect in how we treat and do relationships because God's design was absent of shame. Look at the very last verse of chapter 2. Both the man and his wife were naked, yet felt no shame. Shame manifests in feelings of unworthiness, inadequacy, a sense that you're a fake and at any point somebody's going to figure that out and expose you. Shame can drive people to give generously of their time and their money. It can cause some to work harder than all the others. Shame can, can, can cause you to strive towards this appearance of success. Shame can fuel feelings of anger and bitterness, but also sorrow and despair. Shame is often silent on the lips, but loud in the mind. But can you imagine a world with zero shame? That, that is the world that God created. But Romans 10, 11 says, everyone who believes in him will not be put to shame. And that in him is in Christ. And it's important to see that Jesus didn't use the tool of shame in order to manipulate people to get them to do what he wanted them to do. Instead, he ushered in a dignity that took away the shame. He, he, he ushered in a way of healing that took away the shame. Jesus came in and changed everything. Because the world, the world was broken. It was absolutely in disarray when Jesus came. The way that we go back through these, these different aspects and all we see in the days of Jesus is brokenness. There was chaos. There was Roman rule in Israel. There, were, there was chaos in relationships. There were factions of Pharisees, Sadducees, the Herodians, the Essenes, all of these different groups. There was just chaos all around. That God's design for male and female had fallen by the wayside. Women were not treated with dignity. We, we see that so on display when, when the disciples are shocked that Jesus is speaking to a Samaritan woman at the well. God's design for, for a good earth that, that was good for people and animals, all these things, this was not on display. God's design for a day of rest had fallen by, by the wayside. God's design to include his word. There were people that knew his word, the Pharisees that knew his word, but they didn't live in accordance with this word. And they rejected the, the word who became flesh and dwelt among us. They, they didn't want the word. God's design for marriage. There were people issuing certificates of divorce for anything. You burn the toast this morning, I'm done with you. Procreation, and then shame. People living in shame. Shame covering them all. Shame being the cloak that many of them wore. 
because of the heavy laws that were placed on top of the law of Moses in order to protect the law of Moses. And it was just shame, shame, shame. And then Jesus came. And Jesus began to go among the people. And he brought in dignity. And he brought in love. He brought in life. Jesus came. God sent his one and only son who came and lived. And the way that he treated people was exactly the way that people were supposed to be treated. His relationship with God was exactly the relationship that God intended with man. But then at the end of that perfect life, he died on a cross because the Bible teaches that the consequence for sin is death. But the gift of God is eternal life. And the only way we could get the gift was for him to pay the price. He was buried, and then on the third day, resurrected seen by many witnesses, ascended into heaven after 40 days with the promise that one day he will return. And the good news is that today, if we will turn from our brokenness and sin and turn to Jesus, that then and only then can we begin to grow into God's design for our lives. Only then can we begin to recover all of these aspects of God's design. It's only then that order begins to come in our chaos. It's only then that we truly recover what it is to be male and female, made in the image of God, and to treat one another with the right dignity that God endowed us with in the beginning. It's only then that we begin to take a new look, a fresh look at what we do with the resources of the earth It's only then that we begin to treat the Sabbath as a gift, not a law. It's only then that we really cling to and savor his word. It's only then that we begin to grow in our understanding that marriage, that marriage is not just meant to make us happy, it's meant to make us holy. And that the the, the gift of children is just that, it's a gift. It's a stewardship. They're not something that we make. God is the creator and he stewards children. And so we can pursue that in multiple ways, in a redemptive way, through foster care, adoption, through having children, recognizing these are gifts from God, not a burden, not a curse. God's design, finally, it brings us out of shame so that then we can stand before one another and say, I used to be this, but that's no longer me. In the very arena that used to represent our deepest aspect of shame becomes our primary platform for displaying the grace of God. I mean, Jesus is able to do that to bring such dignity into the life of a person that the very area that he rescued them from becomes the arena that they rush back into with the good news. They themselves no longer slaves to that sin, but now proclaiming a message that sets others free. That is the power and the grace of God. That is the goodness of God's design. So when we do the three circles as a church, and I encourage you, make plans next Sunday to attend. Please, we'll be training in here at 11 o'clock with a simple tool to be able to learn and to share the gospel. But when we speak about God's design, I hope that now like I can when I look off in the distance, when somebody asks me about my wife, can look off and then when they say, well, tell me, I mean, what's so good about God's design that you can look off and with a fresh reminder, be able to say, it is so very good. It is so good for human flourishing.
It is so good to address the issues that are very real today, even in our own culture. Because the God who created it, the God who ordered it, is so very good. And you can know him through a personal relationship with Jesus Christ. God has made himself known in Jesus, his son. He is that very good. Will you pray with me? Father, I pray, thanking you for the gift of your word today. Lord, I thank you that we are able to worship you, Father, from your word, and that the good order of your word, gosh, Lord, it is amazing when we return to it. Not as something archaic, not as something meant to cause further debates, but as something that is meant to unify us and to strengthen us and to give us solid footing in this life. So God, thank you. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your good design that was lost because of sin, but is now recovered and pursued through Christ. You may be here today and in this moment of stillness. This may be the first time that you've ever had essentially your, your, your appetite wet by the goodness of God's design. You, you've never seen it this way. You, you'd always thought of it as something maybe archaic, irrelevant. But today, maybe for the first time, you're looking, you're saying, that, that actually describes the life I would want. That, that is the direction that I think is good and that I do want to go. I want you to know you cannot go there. You can't get back without Jesus. It's like Adam and Eve leaving the garden and saying, you know what, God, we're sorry. We'll go back. We won't do it that way again. No, it was over. They were gone. And the only way, the only way back into God's good design would ultimately come through one of the descendants that would come all the way down to this baby born in a manger named Jesus. And it is only through Jesus, through his life, through his righteousness, through his death on the cross for you, that you can become a new creation and begin to pursue God's design for your life. So please don't make an effort to get back there on your own. Only Jesus can bring you there. Is that where you want to go? Is today a day that maybe for the first time you want to trust Jesus? If so, I want to invite you to come forward during this time. I'm going to invite everyone to stand in this room. And if that's you, you're wanting to get back to God's design. You want to know what it is to trust and follow Jesus. I invite you, come forward. I want to be able to share with you. And we have others that want to minister to you.